Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Taylor Mammon, Senior Managing Director of RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors and Director of the firm's Institutional Advisory Services. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property management, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Anthony Tony Bro, Senior Real Estate Investment Officer of Oregon State Treasury, which manages the Oregon Public Employees Retirement Fund, in addition to other funds that benefit all Oregonians. Tony, thank you so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate. Hello, and good morning to you, Taylor. Great. Fantastic to have you. So I think it's possible that I first met Tony at a ski lodge or perhaps a conference, and we've had the chance to get to know each other in each of our offices at conferences and so on. And I think we've bonded over a sense that there's a better model for institutional real estate investing than what dominates the industry. I hope we can get into some of that during this conversation. But I also think Tony is an interesting person at a well above average level, which again, I think our audience will hear as they listen to the podcast. But first, the basics. So Tony, could you please let us know your official title and basic role at the Oregon State Treasury? To senior investment officer, you got that correct. With real estate, we have senior investment officers for each of the portfolios. So it's responsible for the overall asset class brand, as well as private markets committees that broadly goes across private equity, real estate, and the alternative real assets. Got it. Great. And maybe a high-level description of the Oregon State Treasury's holdings, including real estate. So Oregon State Treasury has been a long-term, I'll start with more of the private markets. I think that's where it takes its fundamental pride in being one of the very first into private equity with launching a private equity buyouts through KKR in the, in the early 80s. Since then, real estate was born out of that, and we've maintained a heavy tilt towards the private market asset classes. We're roughly 45% private markets, 55% capital markets. So rather forward-leaning, but on the other hand, we do review risks and, and try to balance out the long-term actuarial needs for the portfolio monitoring. Got it. And just a sense of scale. So how big is the total fund and how big is the real estate portfolio? <laughs> I should provide context. I'm losing sense of scale during this last six weeks with a <laughs> rather rapid public market movements up and down. And I, I think it's probably a daily figure to point a finger at. Sure. Orders of magnitude billion. then. Yeah, so, so roughly $80 billion, Oregon Public Employees Retirement Fund. We manage a bit over $100 billion across the different investments that Treasury is responsible for. But really, 90% of the private markets and real estate included in that is dedicated to the Public Employees Retirement Fund for Oregon, which is roughly $9.5 billion net asset value real estate exposure targeted at 12.5% of the overall plan. Okay, got it. And I think much of our listening audience consists of operators and then GPs on the real estate investment size. So maybe a sense for the size of your team that's managing $9.5 billion in NAV or net asset value, which probably corresponds to, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and $16 million or higher in gross asset value. So how, how many people are doing that? Maybe describe the composition of your team that, uh, that, that does so. <laughs> the challenge of a pension plan. So right now, we're actually four investment officers, myself and three. We have a dedicated analyst, but the analyst has since promoted out, and we need to find another So in the hiring process. So technically, a team of five dedicated to real estate spread up among different backgrounds and skill sets. But that does give a, a bit of a lean model to the equation. So that means a higher concentration to general partners that we can really scale with and primarily done through separate accounts. And so a little bit heavier on the oversight and monitoring aspects than perhaps a normal recycling program that would have with a lot of closed-end fund structures that have repatriation of capital coming back. But 
that being said, it's still a rather lean model, but it's not atypical, I think, of, of the pure set out there. Right. Well, and, and I think we'll get into this in a moment, but it creates a need for a different type of skill set or focus to be able to do the job effectively from what you might see on the operator side. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a little since I think you've had, you, you have a great perspective on that. But first, maybe we can dig into what got you here. So could you, Tony, give us, I was going to say elevator speech version, but in the era of COVID, <laughs> that might have bad expectations. In any case, a brief description of your professional work history, what got you here? Yeah, hard to do in an elevator pitch. I think it's a long winding road as anyone can attest to when you look back at it. It's, the decisions were never necessarily predicated in advance. So fortunate to find myself where I'm at today, but certainly not a path I had either chosen or knew it end up in. Military aside, spent the first eight years of my life post-college wandering the military end of it and was faced with a bit of a binary decision as a mid-grade junior investment officer, you know, lieutenant getting ready to put on lieutenant commander in the Navy, at which point I had a decision to either stay in and you make your full 20-year run or do you get out and join the civilian world and see what life has to offer there. Part of that decision was made for me. I had a family that was much more supportive of a civilian lifestyle. That was an easier decision to go with. At that point, uh, really ended up in real estate by default. The Fortune 500 firms that are out there have a very robust headhunter experiences and seeking military officers that are equivalent to MBAs as far as high leadership and acumen with decent pedigrees out of school, either through ROTC scholarships and or the academies. And so there's a skill set that are brought to the table, but you're generally competing against kids that are late 20-year-olds, early 30s that are coming out of MBA programs that have proved themselves through education and or through the private sector to get where they're at. So it makes for an interesting head-to-head experience. But in my case, it was really Fortune 500 offerings and, and fantastic firms, but each one of them felt like you're a big part of a huge machine. I entered, interviewed with a, a group called LaSalle Partners at the time, that's now JLL, and it was a very boutique process that was much less scripted. So trying to understand from non-professional recruiters as well, excellent excellent managers, but not necessarily professional recruiters. And so I found the experience to be more stimulating and taking a wild bet. I felt like I literally was jumping out without the parachutes. So joined LaSalle, not knowing what I was getting into, and then found I like real estate. I like the people. It, it made sense to me. It was just a fun asset class not experiencing any other. I probably didn't have a good relative perspective, but I, I never had a second doubt about that. LaSalle made a great bet on me by kind of leaping out with trying to determine how to work an investment officer, how to work a military officer into the equation against uh, people that were came from different pedigrees. To that end, I was just willing to move and enjoy the, the corporate changes that took place over those eight years. It was a high growth part of their maturation in which there was mergers and acquisitions. And so the opportunity, if one was willing to explore it, were really fun. You know, they probably went on a limb, made some good bets to, to allow me to take those experiences and get to live in a couple of different markets as well as overseas, come back, and then uh, that provided me a little opportunity to come over to the pension fund eventually. That's great. So digging into some of that experience, where were you stationed when you were with the Navy and what were your specific responsibilities? <laughs> My Navy journey is where it's a wild uh, wandering path as I get to. So I kind of lived by the creed with the military that I wanted to do what I want, which was counterproductive to <laughs> the military that says, you're going to do what we want. So right. I, I think I was at loggerheads with the military the entire way. But for some reason, uh, the military treated me well and continued to allow me to at least promote right through to retirement. I think if they had been smart, they would have sent me home and packing at some point. So I had the great virtue of having a blast, but it probably fried through limitations. During my active duty days, really was stationed in Coronado, California, kind of paradise on earth down there, a little island surrounded mm-hmm. by reality. Left there, was stationed in Long Beach before they closed that behind me. I, I transitioned over to the ship side to get qualifications as a surface warfare officer so that I could fly back again to get into uh, what I was, you know, my original intent for special warfare. So I ended up going on the ship, getting my qualifications, doing two years on a big old gray hole people tank and was stationed there, Bremerton, Washington. And then uh, as I got back into special warfare, I found out I had a child. So uh, my mindset was probably not best meant to go through nine months of absolute torture and hell and compartmentalization. And you know, as a uh, young lieutenant, I would have been a senior leader in a very, very competitive field. And so rather than make that decision, I had the, the Navy gave me the opportunity to go off to a uh, kind of unknown sector 
working for the NATO forces, but got to go to jump school, U.S. Ranger School, a number of other special operations opportunities, including never gunfire exercise, and then spent the next four years Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, with the Marines as a Navy guy, so kind of a sheep and wolf clothing and working for what was fire support at the time. So unusual to have too many officers in that field, but it was a new area of the Navy that was trying to integrate more into the bring blue water Navy guys into the green uniforms, integrate more into the Army and Marine Corps. So worked for the NATO forces and the 18th Airborne Corps as a four-person. We'd go out in four-people teams to jump into forward observation posts and do close air support and or naval gunfire, but nobody really fires ships, guns anymore. It's kind of a pirate thing. But <laughs> at any rate, I had four great, wonderful years, and uh, doing that's so at my eight-year mark, got out from there. But while they're stationed over in Okinawa, did a nine-month pump with the Marines there, and then a few different deployments uh, between the Gulf and other sandy places. <laughs> You fit a lot into eight years. That, that's for sure. I mean, it's amazing that yeah. uh, yeah. I sure it went by quickly. And then I, I know you spent another longer, longer period of time in the Naval Reserves, too. I did. Right. I did 14 more years after that in order to you find yourself at a, in the military speak uh, right there with your golden handcuffs at the 10 year mark. So, you know, if I get to 20, I get a retirement. I might as well keep going. So LaSalle Partners and then my last firm, as well as coming into Treasury here, were willing enough to deal with the Naval Reservist, uh, try and hold down two careers. And so I bounced around a number of different units, mostly what we call the inshore boat units or uh, mobile inshore undersea warfare units um, as different department heads, executive officer, commanding officer tour. And then I actually retired out of the Army intelligence units of all places to find my last home. Okay, got it. That's great. And has your experience in the military affected your approach to your career? What about to life more generally as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think the harder part is as a military officer, is it's a leadership intensive business to be in as an officer. You, you have large groups of people that you need to motivate and adhere to a something that's much bigger than you. So it's very much a leadership. It isn't how good are your individual traits, but how good are your leadership traits. Translating that over to the real estate investment realm, I would say it was more of a 180. Leadership wasn't required, very little needed there. I actually started my career with LaSalle in the property management side, not on, not on the asset management. So leading really is the team evolution more in property management, but working your way out more to the brokering than up to asset management, leadership doesn't have a, as much a role to play. So for me, it was having two different careers. I got my leadership enjoyments with the military, but I got to make kind of fight my own battle on the, the civilian world every day. Roll forward you know, 20 years later, sitting in, in Treasury now, it's much more of a leadership role. I've got teammates that can run the day-to-day as they're interfacing with general partners, making independent decisions. So it's really leading that team of professionals to meet a higher cause. But I think the biggest thing the military teaches you is you can reprioritize what's really important to you as you figure out what your career model is. For me, I've learned that it's people enjoying the day-to-day, not worrying about how much money I'm making, enjoying what I'm doing. Other people are motivated by the money. Actually, that's what our industry is good at, exceptionally talented skill sets for people that can uh, achieve <laughs> high levels of negotiation and then really, you know, it's shown by return on investment and then capitalizing on that. So I'd, I have less motivated on that. I'd much rather find something that's bigger than me and be a part of that and added it to it. And mm-hmm. Learning that is a, both a humbling, but uh, way to find where your career sets are good at and stick with it. Yeah. So you described the, the thin nature of the state treasury staff to manage a large portfolio, which means that I'm sure you have to figure out how to effectively prioritize your time, you know, which projects to pursue, what to spend time on each and every day. So how do you do that? How do you sort through the various questions, priorities, issues that come your way? I think that's the biggest challenge we're faced with. As a pension fund, you're looking out over the horizon on where the opportunities end up. What's a trend? What's two years, four years, five years out? A typical hold in real estate might be seven, 10 years plus. To do anything less than that is is a, a bigger challenge and market dependent. So it's really trying to keep your eyeball out onto where the long-term trends and horizon goes. So you're inundated with meetings from every general partner and intelligent mind out there, but trying to sort through that, create a funnel process in the end that says, I need to 
where are the holes, where are the gaps, where are the missing pieces in the portfolio that provide the most diversification in a complex world and in a complex real estate portfolio, but then where are the overlaps in the other parts of the pension plan as well? Articulating that and creating the funnel and the trap to get to the final investment theme that says, this is what I truly need and it's moving in the direction is a priority challenge. And I think it's one that we face with every day. And you send out 10 or 20 elegant no's that says, this isn't a fit for me today. Looks great, great team, wonderful investment style, but not something I can move with and I don't need it right now. So separating that out is just, it's a daily part of our processes. And I think we just have to do it with a bit of intuitive, but a lot more, a little bit of science that goes with the art. So sure. definitely uh, an inherent challenge as part of the pension plan. Could you give us an example to illustrate how you determine what is strategic and what is merely tactical? Well, I, I think if you go back to one leading staffing model, then the key word used early being part of the pension plan entails that we do have government, either bureaucracy or government institutionalized underwriting requirements that cannot be avoided and need to be maintained. So even to underwrite or move forward with a new project, if I, I this is something we have to do, that decision's made today. It's three months before, on a fast scale, before that investment's made, sometimes longer if there's tangles and negotiations to be made. So even on a tactical basis, we're still three to six months out before the first dollar's put to work. So that really kind of creates its own trap. So I think that's, that's one. But another example would be what we just went through with COVID. The first two or three weeks of the down part of the cycle where everybody gets sent home in mid-March in the U.S., a lot of capital raised based on speculation and opportunity sets that people were hoping to come to bear, whether it was in the public markets, mortgage-backed REITs, or perhaps debt investments in order to fill the gap for distress that would be coming out. And a lot of that, I think, it did occur, but you had a one-week window to buy on the public markets and sell in the public markets. So a few people that had it could do it, but if you are a pension plan and plan to allocate capital to it, odds are you weren't going to make it in time. Mm-hmm. And that's very tactical and probably hyper-tactical and more so than on a normalized environment. But admitting that up front, not trying to pursue something that you know, doesn't overall affect the program. If I end up with a 1.3 multiple in a two-week hold and a high IRR, does that really, is that additive to my overall plan? And most likely not. So trying to look out instead and, and take that noise out. And right now, I think in this environment, where are the trends going to lie? There's an article every week about the fate of office, suburban office, collective office, and co-working space, or multifamily. And I think we're sorting through that. RCLCO is doing that through a number of your endeavors and podcasts. And my job as investor is to hear all that, engage, listen to it, try to provide an objective lens. And when there's more clarity and visibility to it, say, all right, now I'm moving in that direction. So double down on whichever assets sell off the ones that might not be as strategic as we thought they were, but always keep that you on the longer term horizon when it's known. Yeah, it's a tricky enterprise. I mean, I don't know if a uh, philosopher or statistician will correct me on this, but I, you know, at least practically think there's more uncertainty about what's going to happen 10 years from now than about what's going to happen tomorrow. Some days it doesn't necessarily feel that way, but you're not even investing for 10 years, but in truly perpetuity. The Oregon State Treasury should forever. <laughs> Not, nothing lasts forever, but this is something that's pretty close to it. And so you're basically laying the groundwork for a portfolio that can earn the returns needed to meet your obligations as a pension fund forever, right? And so making decisions that are able to lay the groundwork for that is your job. And it's a, it's, it's a tricky job. And I think not one that a lot of your counterparties on the GP side necessarily appreciate who are you know, investing for a specific time period in which they're working. And, you know, maybe they want their firm to be evergreen, but in the end, we're, we're all kind of investing for our own lifetimes where you're, you're investing for people's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. Yeah, I think another thing that a lot of general partners forget, and sometimes I'll see it amongst peers as well on the LP side, but there's a word called permanence in our, in our, mm-hmm. in our pension plans. And it says you have a permanent allocation to the asset class. And so it's much less important how tactically efficient you work tomorrow or capitalizing on something that's a two or three week or three month distress. It might help on the margins to improve returns or, but there's another inherent level of an overlap and risks in the other asset classes that are also permanent. So understanding your role as a asset class is probably the most vital thing you can do, I think, as a limited partner. But the, given that it's a 
permanent investing, in our case in real estate, it's portfolio construction that, that really rules the day-to-day life. There's another role. There's other asset classes that can take on that tactical role and capitalize on public market arbitrage and opportunities. And that includes right. private equity that's always forward-leaning. So when you peel back the layers in the onion and look at an overall plan that says, I've got a 30-year actuarial rate that's baked into this every couple of years and updated, what is the role and risk taken by each asset class? And understanding yours in real estate is, is paramount. So that's where as an investor, I'm comfortable taking out the tactical parts because we have plenty of tactical opportunities in the other asset classes that can lean forward, do those opportunities on the margins. I can have very flexible, creative partners that might have some ability to capitalize on unique opportunity sets as they come up, but it does not have to be the entire program. That's where I need to be much more careful. Yeah, great perspective. I'd imagine many of our listeners have reached out to you, would like to reach out to you, you know, be, be among the 20 emails that, that end up getting to you <laughs> on any given day and hoping they're not one of the rejection emails. But based upon that, what, what advice would you give to those desiring to raise capital directly from institutional investors such as Oregon? You know, over and over again, I think it's just growing maybe a little more humility or humbleness. Never keep that thick skin. There's peers on my side that never answer emails. Others of us very quick to respond. Some of us like to take a lot of meetings. Others don't want to have a meeting if they don't think it's going to net anything that's productive on their end. So I think when you look at almost every firm out there, there's varying levels of integrity and talent, but by and large, a huge talent pool of creative, good managers across the real estate spectrum, but you can't be everything to everybody. So I think it's a matter of reaching out, opening the door, getting that meeting eventually, learning that the no is going to come with maybe 90% of the meetings, but there's capital to be had out there. One of the limited partners will find that it fits them at the right time and place. And But keep coming back and, and say, hey, I just, I'm dopping in. <laughs> I'd like to spend half an hour with you. No real agenda. And build that relationship because then you connect the people as well. Because the investments are always there. It's just whether or not that you can build a relationship at the same time as being the right investment partner. But to me, it's a long game. Keep that long perspective. And as you mentioned, in the end, your job is to fit new investment ideas into the portfolio that you're trying to develop over the long term. So it's a, it's a bit of a matchmaking enterprise. And sometimes the timing is right for that. Sometimes it isn't. But in the end, you need to be aware of what's out there. I think so. I, I think the other thing, too, to remember, and this is, <laughs> I have to think through how I say it, but one thing, I don't think LPs are a commodity and I don't think GPs are a commodity. And when, when we treat a GP or a general partner as a commodity, then it's just purely looking at the investment and the track record. But you're losing what I call the art of the underwriting side of it, which is the fiduciary integrity, the DNA of the firm, the corporate culture and transparency and things that only come out in times of duress or distress. And that's where the wheat separates from the chaff. And that is something that takes a long time and is an interpersonal requirement. So while certain individuals or institutions may make a decision purely based on that's the investment I need at this time and forgive the other parts of that underwriting, I think building the relationship and creating a personal connection generally over a longer time period will allow a limited partner to find those non-commodity, as I call it, GPs, and say, this has got a real opportunity for me now because investment makes sense, but I understand the fiduciary talent and what's underneath the shop as far as what drives the people and the motivations and alignment. And then that's a good match. And that takes a lot longer. And as a larger pension plan, I think 60 to 70% of our portfolio really is filled with what we call long-term strategic partners. And those are groups that have taken years to cultivate that relationship because the fiduciary, the word fiduciary is absolutely integral to what we do. And and it's absolutely needed to mitigate everything from headline risk to create the returns that we need. To me, that that is a long-term goal. And it should be aspirational for any general partner, not not a quick capital raise because you had a good one-hour meeting. Yeah. Great perspective. It's amazing how frequently that comes up in these types of conversations. In the end, we're all trained to be analysts and evaluate opportunities based upon the numbers, the pro forma and everything else. But equally, if not more important, are the qualitative aspects of of the relationship, as, as you put it. The fiduciary mindset, culture, 
just position of your partner in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's really hard for some, we'll have partners that come in or general partners that we're not uh, relationships with that come in, have a, a wonderful hour meeting, hour and a half, very intelligent, clearly know how to articulate what their endeavors are and their skill sets, where they've invested and how their returns are, are created. But there isn't a room for them. <laughs> it's not a, mm-hmm. I have an overlapping strategy, someone else that employs that. And the no, sometimes it's not received well. And, and it's sometimes just as simple as I, I just don't have room for you. I don't need to move into this right now. Yes, you're wonderful. It looks yeah. great. But I would say don't take that as a negative. Have come back again another half hour because three years from now might be a totally different answer. Yeah. How do you underwrite the integrity and fiduciary mindset of a potential counterparty, potential partner? Yeah, and I, I think that we use the term, and perhaps I'm overusing it here, it's art and science. So obviously, there's a science to underwriting that's needed from the analytics and time in the saddle, learning the real estate industry trade and how to unwind cash flows. But the art part of it is the fiduciary and alignment factors. For us, it, it is a time. You just need to bridge that time over a longer period. It's not making a quick decision because the glossy paper look good on the pitch. It's it's trying to understand the individuals, getting in the shop, meeting the entire team, meeting the youth and the the newer people that have been hired within the organization, getting them alone without the senior manager so you can pull out what's motivates you, what do you like, what do you not like, what are your career aspirations and where does this fit within them and trying to understand what drives the people inside that shop from the very bottom up to the top. And I think that takes time, multiple iterations to get through. But again, going back to the permanence of both the asset class and our investment, we generally have that. So we need to find groups that can invest and do scale with so that extra time is warranted and merited. But I think it's yeah. time, Taylor. I don't, I don't know how else to answer that. Yeah, it makes sense. So what are you doing during this COVID situation? How does it impact your ability or approach to underwriting potential partners? This has been a particular challenge. And in my 25 years of Real estate investing, this is a particular unique three months that we've gone through and now a little bit longer as we look forward. Made a decision fairly early on that it is very important to actually have the in-person meetings and have that face-to-face connection and multiple opportunities to meet with a team before we make investments. I can't imagine a one-hour meeting ever resulting in an investment maybe one after multiple one-hour meetings in the first good one, but not after just one meeting. So with that, we turned off the, or I'm terming it, putting a moratorium on new relationships, glad to open the door, have a dialogue, have a Zoom meeting here and there, trying to limit those with a lot of information flow. But the biggest change is that we're not taking on new relationships. I just don't want to introduce to our portfolio a lower standard or lower bar on underwriting the alignment factors that go in that are so hard to quantify. And and to your question, can you quantify them? I can qualify them. And then I have to make sure I'm doing that right and doing justice to the qualification criteria. The quantifying is harder to do and probably a task that can't be done. So with that, we've turned that off and, and I'm calling it bridging the gap. We just need to bridge the gap for a three months, six months, whatever this time period in which we have challenged travels and inabilities to do the face-to-face meetings that we normally have as part of our business. So if I can keep things on the rail with existing partners, we have scale where I can there, leverage their resources and capture opportunity sets with existing partners within the portfolio that will bridge us through until we get back out on the other side and can start opening the door for new relationships and vetting. Right. It sounds like with your perspective that you're engaged in a long-term investment pursuit, three to six months isn't necessarily going to matter all that much in the end. If you, no. if you, if you miss a few opportunities to take advantage of tactical events in these three to six months, you're going to be okay with that is essentially the, the decision you've made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I know we'll miss opportunities here and there, but I might introduce something to the portfolio through a lower underwriting standard that has unintentional consequences and is harder to unwind. As most of us know, once you're in a partnership, it's much harder to extricate yourself. So get the front end of it correct. And I'd rather err on yeah. that side and we'll, we'll do just fine. <laughs> right. Sounds like marriage advice, too. Well, we say that a lot with our partners. We truly are married to them. It is a long-term relationship. (laughs) Yeah. 
So I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about leadership. And it was interesting to hear you describe really the beginning of your career as having an intense focus on leadership in the military and now leading the team at Oregon is, is kind of coming back to those roots in your career. So maybe to get us started, let's, you know, if I can ask a couple of personal questions that I, I think go to the heart of leadership. So what would you describe as your greatest vulnerability and how do you compensate for it? I think there's a couple different, but one would certainly be just understanding your own skill sets and motivations. And my reckoning probably has been along the lines in this industry of learning that I am not the deal junkie, if that's the term to use. I am not the, I don't live for the art of the deal and winning every deal. But this is an environment and an investment area that generally those that win the deal and are more forward-leaning and aggressive in their negotiations are the ones that are going to make tremendous amount of monies and find those opportunities, build out platforms, and you know they're, they're winning the deals. I've learned that I like to work within a shop that has winners, but it isn't necessarily the negotiations that fire me. I'm not, don't need to have that. I'd really co- like to coalesce a team and be part of something bigger. So just recognizing that up front is probably the first thing that says, all right, then I got to find areas that fit that model that I can still work with industry that, that has room for that kind of capacity. So that's really the first. And, and sitting in a room as a limited partner, I, I have to have that recognition each day because you're sitting in front of the C-suite. You're sitting in front of sometimes the titans are in an industry that are on Squawk Box and CNN every other day. Those guys win the deals, right? They're, they're phenomenal. They sometimes have as much capital as my <laughs> investment program, but I've earned it. And so knowing that I'm not necessarily trying to go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with the intellect or the prowess, but instead holding my own confidence in where I am good and where we can make a difference and where we can hold the line on what is needed for our programs important, but recognizing what makes the uh, makes each individual tick is probably the first start. But the limitation for me would have been trying to overcome the, the lack of need for winning a deal. So, you know, being on a broker's side and they just want to... Sure make the transaction, move on, go to the next, really don't want to stay with it. I enjoy the connections more so than that. As yeah, that, I, I can personally understand that, Tony. It, it, <laughs> it re- resonates with me as well. I, I think it's something you're either born with or you're not. And you can certainly learn the skill set necessary to negotiate and so on. But the passion <laughs> yeah. for, for winning I, I, a deal is something you're either born with or not. Well, we see that every day when you're negotiating your limited partnership agreements. My general mindset is you find the middle, not necessarily as quickly as you can, but you don't have to hold the goalposts for long and then move it further out. We yeah. have partners on the other side that want to find every single sentence has something they want to take issue with and just insist on arguing about it, when in the end, it really isn't very <laughs> it's a productive no, but they feel like they won if they capture it. So you gave into that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a limitation in the end. It's just a recognition of who you are and, and what you're good at to a large degree. But was it something that you had to overcome? Is there a is there, was there a point in your career when when you thought, gosh, well, if I'm not if I'm not the deal junkie that I think I should be, I'm not gonna be as successful in real estate as I'd like well, to be. Yeah, so I don't think it was a limitation. Maybe it's not a falling part. The limitation is coming to a recognition of where you do have limited capacity and where you have greater capacity, and then finding a career that works that well. I honestly moved into the limited partner position and took the job and, and kind of went out on the, the, the end of a limb, not knowing what I was getting into. And I was fortunate enough that I enjoyed being a limited partner. Coming over to the, I had worked for a developer for a few years, finally worked my way into asset management. You find yourself with a number of competitors and peers that truly, they want to get into the C-suite. They want to own their own firm. They got firm. They've got entrepreneurial drive. I don't know. That is a limitator for me. It's not what makes me tick. I don't want to own my own business. That was never a career goal. But if you're a developer, you just want to develop, right? Or you just want to get the promote. Your That money is important. You want to be recognized financially for taking the risks or making a deal or consummating a transaction. Knowing that that isn't a, it's a limitation in your own career or your own needs or wants is probably an important factor for determining what your next step is and the next opportunity. So coming over to a pension plan where you get to interact and use all the skill sets that you've built over your time and and that toolbox that, that everybody has in their hip pocket to bear into the investment world is important, but knowing that it's you can now leverage the skill sets that are best for you. 
And so for me, it really was coming over to the limited partner side. I think there's wonderful opportunities still on the private sector as well, but it's, you have to find where your limitations and strengths are. And how does one go about doing that? For somebody maybe starting off in their career, what advice would you give them as they try to grow and move themselves into leadership roles? That's a challenging question and one that's probably always got 2020 hindsight and very, very hard to have the forward sight on. I think the most important is, is being in the moment and then secondly, who you surround yourself with. And I am an advocate and a very large fan of the mentorship program. I've always had that mm-hmm. and it's done me well. So I always tell people, whether it's people I work with now or that when you're doing some of these mentorship programs for youngsters coming into the real estate world is find two mentors as combinations. I've sometimes said three, sometimes two, but to keep it simple, it's, it's find a peer and find a senior person that you emulate. And it shouldn't be because they're rich or they're wealthy or they, they own a firm. Those are qualifiers that are important, but they're people that you aspire to be as well. You like their work-home life balance, the rewards that they've received and that who they are as people. And then go out on the limb and ask the senior person, would you be my mentor? Don't, you know, not dragging me and promoting me. Hopefully it's not someone in your shop because you want to have someone that's outside that can be objective. Say, well, I want to call when I'm looking for career opportunity and advice. You're on the other end of a line that I can ask a very objective question to and get a very objective feedback that I might not otherwise get because you've got that extra 20 years in hindsight on you that you can bring back to me and maybe maybe steer me once they get to know. But make sure it's someone that you can know and build that relationship with. I think that's just wonderful. A lot of senior people in the organizations I've found when I've used that approach, they're thrilled to have someone mid-grade that they actually feel a connection to, but then said on a personal basis, I'd be glad and honored to do that. And then over time, you'll meet two or three other people that you say, I want to bring into that safe fold. But you have to be careful. I think it's keeping them objective, a little out of arm's length that says, I don't ever want to work for you and put you in that position unless that's, <laughs> that's for them to offer, but not for you to ask. But it's a safe sounding board. And so as you're looking at complex situations or you're going through a change in your own thought processes, you get to reach out and ask. And then a peer, I think, is important too. Someone else that you look across the table at and say, I'm working with this individual, roughly of the same age or perhaps career level, like who they are, I need to have a safe person. And I I actually trust them. So how do you bring them in the tent and then use that as a sounding port of a different variety? But I think those are always important to have. And and it's amazing how over time, those relationships that are cultivated will, will net both relationships and opportunity sets. Great. In the peers, do you have any perspective on whether the peer should be within the organization, your same organization, or from a different organization, you know, some similar role, different organization? I try to go outside of the organization as much as possible. The relationships built inside and inside an organization can be much more incestuous and then mm-hmm. have personal conflicts that make it difficult for people to maintain objectivity. So all of us have industry peers or perhaps someone that you went to school with or you know, is now launched into another firm, but have roughly going through their career track and changes. And you, you make that pact that says, as long as I'm honest to you, you're honest back to me, but I, you're, you're my work friend. So now I want to have that. I've got a question about where my career goes. Should I make this decision? I want you on the other side of the line to ask that question too. And if they break the safety code by violating an honest answer or um, anything along those lines, then you move on. But then you learn that's not the person you want to emulate anyway. But I I think it's a great way to exercise your own external extroverted natures or cultivate some extroversion. And it breaks down silos. What other advice would you give to someone going into a leadership position for the first time? I think the most important one is always put the team first, period. I, I go through this fundamental exercise. It feels like every year of my career going back to the first days, uh, even in the investment world, we're we're in an industry that has high levels of performance compensation and bonus structures. And while those are individualistic in nature and have bars that each individual needs to maintain, I generally look at it as a team that's, my job is to support the team. So I want every one of my teammates to succeed at all costs because each one of them rise, you know, lifts the boat. So as you look at performance compensation, I'd rather find teammates that are complementary to each other. And if someone has extroversion skills, the next one has introversion, someone's better at analytics, the next one is much better at monitoring, someone's better at underwriting. There's always 
skills that all of us have that complement the others. I'd rather plug and play and put that whole puzzle together so that as a body, they can leverage off of each other and then not strip down the silos and say, you're, you know, beat them with a stick and say, I, you didn't achieve, you're not as good as the guy next to you. You're better than that one. And to me, it's how does the team function? If the team complements each other and puts together, I'd rather have the entire keeping the focus on the team. I'm wandering mm-hmm. on the, the response. But to me, that's always much more important than, than looking at everybody as an individual. So put the team first. Always put your employees first. Say, I'm here to support you. Whatever it is that you need in your career or whatever tools you need to succeed, you need to let me know when those aren't being delivered. And then open that door for dialogue and 360 feedback that says, if I am not supporting you and your goals or I'm doing something that isn't helping you function better, I want you to say it. Now, I have to say it in a constructive tone. It doesn't have to be over-deferential, but it needs to be – the door needs to always be open. And I think that's critical to any leadership position in order to make a team work together, harmonize. And five individuals or 20 individuals working together will always, always outperform one. Yeah. Has that been difficult to maintain with your team while everybody's been working from home? Or have you found ways to compensate <laughs> for physical distancing? Uh, that's a really good question, Taylor. I think it's been challenging for me. As a leader of the team, it's, I think that each rung you go up the ladder, so my boss and then the CIO, it's probably even more challenging because it gets more and more lonely there. And so the requirement for the flow of communication is much narrower to, or the conduit of communication is much narrower each step you have to go. I find the team has done an amazing job of communicating, collaborating, working together, using Teams or Zoom to facilitate dialogue. But it's a harder part for a leader to sit there and say, I'm working a bit more in a vacuum now. How do I manage the processes, know what everybody's doing, but not micromanage? And that's, mm-hmm. been, that's been tough to do. Yeah, I think it's, it feels a little lonelier as the leader right now. So it's harder for me, probably all kids yeah. on the team. Right. Well, we, we hope it's all temporary, but I hope we learn things from this experience as well that we can apply when, when we all go back to whatever is the new normal. I agree. I think what hopefully learn is that there's, in this environment, I call it the 80% rule. So we're probably 80% effective. We can do the basics, mm-hmm. keep everything moving. Right now, there's not enough transactions in the market to test the theory that we're able to, to appropriately transact. But we can do 80% of the job functions well. But it's that 20% that really optimizes the outputs. And we need time together. We need to synergize better. We, there's ways to facilitate dialogue that are not replicated by teams that require two-way interaction and in the same room at the same time. Just like we're doing right now, only one of us can speak at a time. You need a room where two of you can speak and you can fumble through the conversation. That's that 20% that's missing today. So I think we're recognizing that with each day that goes by. First, we were surprised at yeah. how well this works. And then we realized, but it's not working all the way. It's not a complete replacement. Yeah, great, great perspective. Appreciate that. So I happen to know that you're about to embark on a bit of a journey, <laughs> physical journey that I suspect might lead to some time to ponder when not worried about some kind of impending disaster. So I guess... First, would you mind describing the trip that you're likely to take? And then would love to talk about what, what you're thinking about these days. What, what are you pondering and trying to figure out? So trip first, though. All right, trip first. In our industry, we all uh, are consummate travelers and road warriors. <laughs> so we tether ourselves back to the office to get administrating and leadership functions in the inside the shop and then get back out in order to find out what's happening to our investments. We're in a unique position in which we now find ourselves at home for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. We could be in Thailand or Alaska, and still it would be whatever's behind you is probably the only thing that, that matters from a, uh, a Zoom or a phone call meeting. Given the unique opportunity set that brings in, is a, we can actually work somewhere else now to get our same job functions done. So my... Um, inclination was to figure out how to do a deployment, go back to my old military roots. And I enjoy my time on either a bicycle or motorcycle and the motorcycle gets me a lot further and I can carry a laptop with it as well. (laughs) So my daughter lives in Montana, taking a few days to get there. I'll stay out in the back country and sleep under the stars in a tent. But once I'm there, I need to set up camp. And obviously this is a work journey as well. So the goal is to get out there, spend a few weeks, uh, and time with my daughter that I don't always get. Uh, a lot of folks here have been able to spend time with their kids and 
family and find that's the silver lining and all this. So I got to go find that silver lining. I'm an empty nester now. Right. So spend a few times with her and then wander my way down to Colorado and meet my wife there when she flies out with the family, which means I get to find days to put on the calendar as vacation days, wander through different mountain ranges and overnight camps. And somewhere in there, I need to find Wi-Fi, phone calls, and keep my job going too. So uh, it's a (laughs) fascinating balancing act and a logistics planning exercise. Good challenge. But just to emphasize, you're not taking Interstate 84 and Interstate 90 <laughs> to Montana. You're, uh, you're, you're going by the road less traveled. So I have only two rules on a, on a motorcycle, and that's uh, one is rubber side down, meaning keep the two wheels on the, on the ground. <laughs> but then the other one is rubber side down on no interstates. Uh, so absolutely right. I will find every back mountain road and mountain pass that doesn't have a yellow line and forest service roads and then primitive camp as well. And doesn't give me the opportunity to dress in anything nicer, but uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I get to see places and experience things and have my own thoughts. And to your point there, it's, I drive my team a little nuts because I always say I have my best thinking moments in the shower. I've solved the world's planet issues when, when I'm in the shower. By the time I'm out and I'm at work, I've forgotten whatever it is I solved. <laughs> But I know I did something amazing in my brain. So on the motorcycle or a bicycle, it tends to be the same thing. I, I do a lot of thinking. It's time inside your own head. And if you can capture a few of those moments and retain those, you walk away and say, okay, I, I had time to process without active thinking. I've got a few ideas that we can move forward with. And I'll come up with my best ones always on the bicycle or motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping a few days of solitude and being captured captive to my own brain musings will net in something more positive as we uh, find ourselves investing outside of the post-COVID world. Right. Well, what questions are you asking? What things might you be pondering when navigating rocky terrain between here and or Oregon and Montana? Yeah, I, I can't remember what I said when we talked about this earlier. Now, actually a little bit different than I probably even was a few weeks ago with the recent events and anger and turmoil seen through active protests and racism in our society. I actually We've had a concerted effort for the last couple of years on how to effectively incorporate ESG into our due diligence process. So it's been first and foremost as an organization, how do we do it? And I think we've worked through it methodically and are are learning what that means. But I think it moves into a higher prioritization for us, so truly sitting at the top of the stack. And to that end, the industry has made tremendous strides, particularly on the sustainability part. It's the social governance that's really hard. And maybe that goes to our art and science conversation mm-hmm. before. There's much more art there. So ensuring that we're doing the right thing and being a proactive decision maker on how to help the world move forward, I think will be a larger goal for us this year so that we're asking the right questions. We're more additive to the conversation and that we're not being passive. So I think that's the questions I have right now. I want to maintain a prudent investor standard, do things with a elegance that is warranted, but how do we ask the appropriate questions and then help our partners, our general partners, and provide that back to the industry, both right. internally and then as we, we work our diligence process outside shop. And that's pretty, it's a good part of my time I'm spent thinking, which isn't necessarily pure investment um, related. Yeah, I love that answer. It's something I've been thinking about, too, really, ever since a few weeks ago. I can't remember exactly when. And I drove into Santa Monica the the morning after the protest and unfortunate looting had taken place. And as we all know, Santa Monica is an an affluent area with high-end shopping and so on. And the first thought that really popped into my mind is that this is an inequality tax or a injustice tax that we're going to have to pay as a society as long as that's our system. So I don't think it is solely ESG, ESG meaning environmental, social, and governance should probably be taken out of the context of just a good thing to do. And it absolutely is a good thing to do, but it's likely something with economic implications as well. So it'll be interesting yeah, to hear so. what you think about, Tony. Yeah, my learning curve with that has been that the conversation has, I, I grew up with an African-American brother, um, and we have minorities in our, our family, and so it's, but it's not necessarily the, the relationship I grew up in. And so when I look back at the clock, there have been speeches made and that are 10, 20, 30 years ago that if you replay them today, they're just as, just as valuable. They could have been written yesterday. 
And the fact that that much time has gone by, and then when you look at people protesting and, and exercising their democratic rights in this environment, there's anger in the streets. It's palpable. And so I have to reflect inwardly and say, well, have we taken too passive of a stance? Are we not aware of things going around us? And, and while the answers aren't there, and it's not always a crystal yes or no, the fact that so much time has gone by and we haven't made as much progress as perhaps we had thought does require, I think, an inward look to say, what can we do better and how? And let's move forward from this. So it's definitely some challenges that need to be overcome now. That's first and foremost. The investments, it's, I think part of the, the leading question is, well, where, where would you put your capital and you know, where's the... You know, where's the next investment being made? I, I think to your end, we're all sorting that out, and I'm going to continue listening yeah. to your podcast to help me formulate that. But we're probably <laughs> a few months away. <laughs> Retail's not quite dead. Co-working might come back, but maybe not in the scale it was. But I'm not making bets on any of it until we have better visibility. Right. Well, as you said a moment ago, 20 people working together as a team are going to be more effective than one. So I think as we continue these dialogues and continue to collaborate, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll find the answers to a lot of these hard questions because we do have hard questions to answer. And Tony, I, I appreciate all that you've said about leadership and your role as an investor of the people's capital, essentially. You know, that it's the little guys that make up the large fund of capital that you invest in real estate. And it's certainly apparent that you don't let a day go by in which that isn't top of mind for you. So thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you for your time with us on this podcast. Again, like to thank my guests or RCLCO's guests, Tony Bro from the Oregon State Treasury and wish you safety on your motorcycle journey through the Rocky Mountains over the next few weeks as well. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.